I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Welcome to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. I'm John. I, I don't know why I keep saying that every week. By this point, you probably you know who I am, right? I mean, like I guess there's some people who might be jumping on board and listening for the first time with with episode 65. In which case, hi, welcome. But by this point, you you, you probably know who I am, right? Anyway, this week there was a story which particularly annoyed me. There was a report put out by luxury estate agents Stratton Parker arguing that all millennials need to do to buy their own houses was to give up sandwiches. Actually, it's not entirely fair. It also suggested giving up uh, lottery tickets. It reckoned the average millennial is spending £832 a year on lottery tickets. Give up mini break. Sounds a bit more realistic. And you got all the way down this thing. At the very end, it said, you know, oh, by the way, we're still assuming you're inheriting £30,000 from your, your parents to help get you a deposit on a house. So, I mean, the whole thing's obvious bollocks right my suspicion is they put this out knowing exactly what response it was going to get because we you know the likes of you and me we're not really in Stratton Parker's target market are we they're aiming at the kind of people who will find it very funny that have trolled us like this but nonetheless you know at the time on, when I read this on on Tuesday I didn't have quite so much of a sense of humor about it at that point so I stopped whatever I was doing which as it turned out was was wandering around the Glasgow Museum of Transport which is very nice and you know, I just I just dropped everything sat there with a laptop and bashed out a, a parody which you can see on the New Statesman website, which is kind of a mark of quite how how irritable I was about that whole thing. But that probably wasn't wasn't a very useful contribution to the housing crisis on the whole. An organisation which is making a rather more positive contribution to solving the housing crisis, one would think, is the Charity Shelter. So I went round to their very fine offices on, on London's fashionable Old Street to, to have a chat with one of their policy officers about affordable housing, Section 106, and what we really need to do to, to fix this mess. So I, we're, we're sat here in, in a very nice room uh, overlooking the city of London, where I'm, I'm told there's a nice view, but the, the blinds are pulled, so it's a bit of a theoretical nice view at the moment. You can take a look out the window if you'd like. I can, see, I can see little bits of view. We've oh, got, there's, some, there's some buildings. We've got the whole panoply of London housing here. Lots of, got, yeah, you can see lots of different Social housing, here. we've got luxury flats, mm. we've got all so, sorts. We're so keen to talk about housing, we've kind of jumped into it before I asked you to do it. Tell us... <laughs> Introduce yourself for us. Tell us who you are and what you do. So I'm Rose Grayson. I'm Senior Policy Officer at the housing charity Shelter. And I lead on housing supply and why we're not doing enough of that. 
And like you were telling me before we started recording, you sound like a woman on a mission. You've been sort of working in housing, trying to get housing built in a number of organisations, right? Yeah. So before I worked at Shelter, I worked for a housing association. And my big mission was to try to get homes built that would be affordable for apprentices. You know, my thinking is that if we can't even build homes to be lived in by the people building the homes, um, then we really are stuck. We do have a massive skills crisis. And, you know, unfortunately I failed um, because it's incredibly difficult to build affordable housing um, because of sort of the land market being broken and, and various other laws which make things really tough. So I decided to come to Shelter to campaign to change that. So, so basically now you're here, you're going to fix everything. We're not going to have a housing crisis in a couple of years. And it's or die all trying. to you. So. Yeah, or die trying. Okay, well, <laughs> I, I, let's, let's not speculate as to which of those outcomes is, is most likely at this stage. Um, but you guys have been doing a lot of interesting work recently on the subject of affordable housing. Yeah. That's quite a difficult term. That's quite a contested term, isn't it? Because yeah. there's an official definition that's... that's Slightly Orwellian, let's put it that way. What does, firstly, what does affordable housing mean? So, the government's definition of affordable housing is uh, housing that costs uh, no more than 80% of market rates. But, of course, market rates are incre- incredibly expensive, um, completely out of people's reach. So this has led to a crazy situation where affordable housing can include homes worth a million pounds in Hackney. We've seen some of that. For shelter, affordable housing means... Um, strikingly, housing that is affordable to people to live in. Um, so we say that your housing costs should take up no more than a third of your income. And that's lots of international research has been done, which suggests that's about right to leave enough income to you know live your life, participate in the economy and society, pay your living costs, not be dragged down by your housing costs in the way that, that so many people are now. How did the government come to this? This idea was was it just kind of the morsing out of solving the problem? It was partly about trying to make money go further. So you know, um, after the recession, when we have a very different funding environment, to put it diplomatically, um, it's about trying to take the same amount of money, um, and indeed less money, and make it build the same number of homes. And if you can do that, then those homes are going to end up being less affordable. And the other side of it is about building homes for different kinds of people. So rather than affordable housing being about building homes for rent um, for the very poorest people you know, to maintain a social mix, it becomes more about trying to build um, more homes for people in the middle, so more shared ownership schemes. Um, Shelter doesn't think that's wrong, because we can't just be building homes at the very top and the very bottom. There does need to be something in the middle as well. But the, the consequence of that, because you know, it's the same funding being spread more thinly, is that we now have very, very little social rent housing that's actually affordable to people in minimum wage jobs. What's always felt to me very silly about the government definition is that it's kind of, it, it moves. By definition, if it's 80% of market rate, if the market goes up by 20%, yeah. or the numbers probably don't work quite like that, but you know, roughly that proportion, then suddenly housing that wasn't affordable before is affordable and it's you know but people's incomes haven't changed and that feels, it feels like you want an income-based measure rather than a, a, a price-based measure does that absolutely it, yeah. it should completely be income-based um the market rate has nothing to do with affordability um and it is really great that we're starting to see city mayors um come up with those sorts of definitions again 
So in London, we've now got London living rents, which tie the rents to a third of local incomes. That's also the official definition being used by Andy Burnham in Manchester. So cities are starting to try to take a grip of this problem and say, OK, come on, you know, we're not in 1984 here. Affordable means affordable. And if it's affordable, then it means people can afford it. Um, not that it's, you know, theoretically a bit cheaper than the most expensive <laughs> stuff out there. So, so you guys just put out some new figures uh, today, as we're recording this, I believe, um, showing that affordable housing numbers are, are not not great, put it that way. Yeah. Do you want to kind of talk us through some of the findings there? Yes, yeah, so these are government figures, and they show that we are building um, 41,000 affordable homes a year. Um, that's up very slightly from last year, but last year really was a low point, um, and it's still far below the average across the last decade. I mean, to put to put it into contact into context, forty one thousand affordable homes. We need to be building about one hundred and fifty thousand affordable homes a year, and that's not just about meeting people's need for affordable homes. That's about driving up overall supply. So most economists agree that we need about two hundred fifty thousand to three hundred thousand new homes a year in order just to keep demand steady, just to keep prices steady. We can't do that through private for-sale housing alone, because there's only so much demand. House builders can only build homes as fast as there are people to buy them, and there is only so much money chasing those homes. So if you want to drive up figures, it's, it's pretty much impossible to do it by selling more, more homes to people for private ownership. You've got to do it through build-to-rent, you've got to do it through social housing, you've got to do it through shared ownership. You need a mix of tenures. And affordable housing is the way that we get that mix of tenures in this country. So whenever you see really low affordable housing figures, that's absolutely going to mean low overall housing output. It makes everything worse for everybody. What about the kind of geographic spread of these affordable houses? Where, where are they? Are there some areas that are better than others? Are there some types of place that are doing more on this? I mean, it's pretty bad everywhere at the moment because every- oh, that's cheerful. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, everywhere is, is, has got less funding to spend on this stuff. Councils across the country have had their borrowing capped, so you know that makes it difficult across the country. And then this this third bit that Shelter has been looking at around viability. So this is kind of how the planning rules, independent of the funding available, how the planning rules make it really difficult to build affordable homes. That affects cities, um, we think, worse than than everywhere else, because. Viability is about the housing that we provide through Section 106. So when a developer gets planning permission to build homes, you know they want to build the most expensive homes that get the biggest profits, the luxury towers and all that. The bargain is, we let you do that, but you have to build some affordable housing as well. Otherwise, it's just not worth the community's while putting up with the disruption of that development. Um, and we have Section 106 contracts to make that happen. But viability rules have been allowing developers to get out of their affordable housing commitments. And that's affected cities much more, because in cities you have kind of the higher land values that allow you to extract more from that kind of development. There's, we're kind of drifting into an area of a certain amount of technical terms, so let's, let's unpack some of those. As I understand it, Section 106 kind of places a responsibility on developers to provide something yeah. for um, and but it's not just affordable housing right there are other ways they can provide a sort of community facility or they, can, they just have to give something back in some way is that yeah but most areas have an affordable housing policy um so you know for example in kensington and chelsea uh, it's 50 percent. 50 percent of the new housing you build should be affordable in other areas like newcastle for example it's 15 percent and that that percentage is set by um, the difference in the land value. So let's say you take a scrapyard 
and you want to build some housing on it. Um, if you get planning permission to build really expensive housing for sale on your scrapyard, suddenly its value goes up by hundreds, potentially even thousands of times at the stroke of a pen, without you having done any work. Um, that's where the developer's profit comes from, that's where the landowner's profit comes from, and that's also where we get affordable housing, money for new schools and roads from. And our, our contention is that that value should be shared equally between the community and Be between the private interests. Because it's effectively generated by the community in the form of the council saying, Absolutely. right, you can build here. Absolutely. And of course, that value is also affected by the surrounding community. You know, so if a council has invested a lot in the community and made it a nice place to live, that's going to be reflected in those land values. So it's absolutely right that the community gets to take that value back. And affordable housing is one of the ways that that happens. What, what are the others out of interest? And you might build new schools, new roads, um, you might expand services, you might have provision to make sure there are enough jobs for an expanded population. It might be about the design quality, it might be about the size of the homes, it might be local parks. All of these things at the moment are getting squeezed by this viability trick that we'll go on to talk about. And that means that all of the things that communities actually want from developments are getting squeezed. So it's no surprise when people can be hostile to new developments because they're not getting what they should. I think people feel that and actually it's true. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It also, I mean, the, the, the list of things you just reeled off there, like parks and schools and so on, it just sounds like this is the kind of thing that Britain's great municipal, municipal governments used to do, but it's no longer have the money or power to do. Absolutely, because those powers are being stripped away. So, yeah, and as, as is the money to, as is the capital funding, you would need to do these things. So it feels like, firstly, we've kind of outsourced these things to private developers, mm. and now they're trying to wriggle out of it. So let's, let's talk about viability assessments. First off, what, is, what does viability mean? So national planning rules in 2012 changed, and the idea was to try to make development more profitable you know, to help development in a time of, of recession. And there's one ambiguous phrase there, which says that developers and landowners have to be allowed to make a competitive return from, from development. But there's no official definition of what competitive return means, and that means that developers have been able to define it for themselves. 
Um, and if they're not making a competitive return, they can submit a viability assessment and say, OK, we can't afford to provide that affordable housing. We can't afford to build that school. We can't afford to build that road, whatever it may be. We're going to have to make the home smaller. We're not going to be building family homes anymore. We're going to be building, you know, single one-bedroom homes. Um, any of those things might happen. Affordable housing is, is usually the casualty. And then the council has um, a legal duty to, to accept that reduction in affordable housing. Now, shelters looked at the impact of this on cities. We looked at nine cities across England, and we found that in one year, this viability trick has led to the loss of 2,500 homes. So if we think about what that might be doing across the country... You know, this, this is just 11 councils across mm. nine cities. We're going to be talking about a lot of affordable housing, which is being lost, which we could be building for no public money. This is not a case of let's throw a load of public money at the problem. This is, this is you know, affordable mm. housing that we could be getting for, for no public money. So firstly, this was 11 councils out of how many? Is it about 400? Uh, 326. 300. So it's about 30 times that. I mean, like this is obviously massively oversimplifying, but... But so that's, we're, we're talking like high five figures is probably the gap. Is I, would have, I would have thought we're looking at the tens of thousands, yeah. yeah. But yeah, okay, so this sounds like a cost-free option, but is it, is it really? I mean, like, I'm just thinking about the law of unintended consequences. If developers were being forced to actually sort of live up to these responsibilities and do all these things, would that have a knock-on effect elsewhere? Would they just develop less? because they're less profitable. Well, the really interesting thing about this is um, the big beneficiaries from this viability loophole aren't developers. Developers get to protect their level of profit, um, but the big the people who've actually seen a massive increase in their profits from development are landowners, because developers factor in the fact that they can get out of building affordable housing when they're working out how much they can afford to pay for land. Because we have a really competitive land market. You know, there is only so much land... Um, Mark Twain once said, buy land, I hear they're not making any more of it. So however much you can pay, whoever can pay the most for the land, that developer is going to win. And this means that developers are locked into um, a race to the bottom. So whoever makes the worst assumptions about affordable housing and about the community benefits they're going to provide is always going to be able to offer the most money to the landowner. So if we, if we look at who's benefiting, developers are benefiting. Um, their profits have roughly trebled over the last five years. But it's land where we see this huge spike in land values. If we look at other stuff that's happened, um, community infrastructure levy um, is a way of trying to get a bit more money um, from the same, in the same kind of way for infrastructure. That hasn't caused development to seize up or stop. The, it's come off the land value. That's what all developers tell us. Right. So okay. it wouldn't. It, it, it would be fact. It would be part, become part of the normal cost of doing business. So I mean, the, the conclusion from this is uh, something you said a moment ago is so shocking. I think it's actually sort of worth repeating, which is like the, the 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 developer that makes the most aggressive assumptions about how little affordable housing they're going to have to build will almost always be the one that can pay most for the land, thus will win the auction, yeah. and thus get to. We've designed a system that kind of gives the advantage to the guys that are going to do the worst job, Absolutely. basically. But actually, developers have to make those assumptions. Because if you've got another developer out there that is going to use the viability trick, that's going to win, you have to do it too. Shelter doesn't blame developers for this. We blame the system, because it's left the cookie jar open for developers to, you know, dive okay. one in and make sure that they're going to win the land. So if, 
if the public is not winning from the system, if, if councils are not winning from the system because they're not getting the homes they need built, if developers are not winning from the system, why can we not just change the system? Why is there not a rule that says... 35% affordable housing regardless. I think that was talked about when yeah. Ken Livingston was mayor of London, wasn't it? Like, why, why is there not just kind of a flat level like that that you can't get out of that gets factored in? Well, there is a little bit of hope here. Um, because it, you, know, you got really excited. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's nice when there's yeah. some hope. Um, so there's some really good things happening. Um, one, there is a consultation which just closed yesterday where the government um, is considering closing the viability loophole. Um, so, you know, remove, removing site level viability assessments entirely, using them only for exceptional circumstances, that would really lock down this problem. Another great thing is that we've got new planning guidance in London, which does say 35% affordable housing. And obviously it still has to work under these national rules, so they don't have complete freedom. What the Mayor of London has done is say... If you build 35% affordable housing, we're going to make your life really easy. We're going to give you an easy, fast time getting through the planning system. And if you don't, we're going to make life more difficult for you. And we're going to make your way through the planning system slower, and that means more cost. And that has been having an impact already. We've seen a massive increase in bids uh, for new developments coming through with those higher levels of affordable housing. There's a limit to what the mayor can do, and I think we do need to change the national rules, because otherwise we're waiting for 326 councils mm. to all wise up and, and catch up. But, but OK, why, why, why has the national government not tackled it? If you could just kind of put in place a rule that says, OK, maybe not even 35%, but like some, some kind of figure that maybe adjusts depending on local house prices That's is what, probably yeah. what you'd want. Yeah. But, but so that there is a clear figure in every local authority area. Why has why national government not gone for this? Because it sounds like quite an easy win. Who's, who's pushing against this? Well, we think they are going to do it. Um, this was something that was introduced in 2012 when you know, we were all still living in, in permanent deference to markets. And I think people are now wising up and realising that it doesn't have to be this way. The government has consulted on changing these rules. We really hope they're going to follow through because it's such an easy win. There are not many times in housing policy where there's something this cheap and easy that would make a huge difference, deliver you know, tens of thousands more affordable homes for people every year. And the other opportunity is, of course, uh, the budget that we've got coming up where we very much hope that we might get an announcement on this. This is a no-brainer, you know. There was talk a few weeks ago, um, before before Theresa May's conference speech, they it was trailed that there would be a big announcement on council housing, which was turned out to be a very small announcement on council housing. But is that like is that part of the solution? Just kind of letting councils get back into the house building game again? Could that have any impact? Oh, absolutely, that's part of it. Um, you know, we we definitely need councils to be able to borrow to build. Um, we need more public investment in affordable housing as well. That's really the only way you bring rent levels down to the point where they're actually affordable. It's all the time we've been talking about affordable housing. We're still afford- talking about the government definitely. Yeah, we're talking about yeah. Sort of, yeah. So you need money to make it actually affordable um, for people. So, why is the land market so stuffed? This is, I mean, like this is, a, this is something I've I've picked up is that all the problems come ultimately back to the land market. But why? Why, why, is, why is this not something we've solved already? We have solved it. We've solved it loads of times across the years, um, and then it's gone back again. So if we think about um, after the Second World War, you know, this country was absolutely skint, and yet we still managed to massively ramp up 
house building. We managed to build lots of affordable housing as well. And, you know, we did that because we reformed the land market, because we said you can bring land into development at lower values. You can buy um, some farmland in the countryside at its existing value um, or close to, um, and then you can build a new town there. Um, as you build the new town, um, house prices go up because you're putting, you know, you're putting investment in there. Um, that then means that you can pay back your initial investors. That is the model that has built some of the best loved places in this country, and we can we could do it again, but well, we would that's need a sort of garden city model, right? Isn't yeah, it? It's Lech- yeah. Lechworth, as I understand it, which is now quite a, a rich little commuter Absolutely. town, has an enormous pot of funds drawn from that goes back into local facilities because yeah. it was kind of a sort of government corporation, right? Yeah, I mean, so any la- any increase in the values goes back to the community and they can continue to invest in things which make people's lives better. Um, but it's also the model that was used to build actually pretty much every city in this country. We haven't built a new city since 1970. And the reason for that, you know, if you, is that if we've changed the land market since then. And we've changed it in a way that means that it's not possible to bring land into development at lower values. If I tried to do this now, if I said, here's some agricultural land between Oxford and Cambridge, say, where there's loads of jobs and we know that values would increase really well, um, I said, I want to build a new community here. Landowners, you know, I can offer you really good profits in the long term if you get involved. One landowner could hold out, knowing that I would have to then CPO their land if I wanted to make that scheme happen, knowing that... It's a compulsory... Compulsory, compulsory purchase, purchase order, sorry, yeah. yeah. Um, and if I did use, the, use that power, if I did compulsorily purchase their land because they were refusing to get involved in the scheme voluntarily, I would have to pay them as if their farmland or their scrapyard had permission to build residential housing on it, even if it doesn't. This is called hope value. It's, it means that landowners aren't compensated based on what their land is, but based on what it could be one day. And of course, pretty much anyone, anywhere in this country, can say that eventually their land would be developed as residential housing. And that's what's been happening. What that means is that 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 changes the whole land market. That means that landowners across the country think their land is valued as if it has planning permission that it doesn't actually have. And that's why land is so expensive. So it's that that like I, I bang on about the green belt part, partly because like it infuriates me that there's, <laughs> just, there's just terrible bits of it right next to tube stations that it seems to me would be much better used as something more useful like even a park not even necessarily housing but just something other than like this scrubby field that teenagers get stoned in or a bloody potato farm in fair I'm, I'm sorry I went off one again but like. It feels to me like, actually, is this the big reform on the land market we need? Just kind of a change in the rules around how much you have to pay on the CPO. Is that the kind of thing that would fix this? Shelter thinks that that's the thing that would make the biggest difference of all. Um, You know, while you could look at building on the Greenbelt, Greenbelt values are lower because people don't think that they're likely to be able to build there. So it it doesn't get valued as if it has residential planning permission. So therefore there's an opportunity there to say where we are doing Greenbelt swaps and building on the Greenbelt, which does already happen. You know, the Greenbelt is constantly moving. That should be done in a way that keeps the land value low, that provides affordable housing, parks, things of community value that people actually want to see. 
So we, we think that where Greenbelt is being developed, it should be done using that model. But also we can bypass the Greenbelt entirely. You know, development is really dependent on urban extension, on building on the outskirts of cities, because we leech off of existing infrastructure and services all the time. Because of the, the way the land market sucks up all the value, there's not enough left to provide affordable housing and schools and roads and things like that. But if we use this different model, the model that built the garden cities, um, then we would be able to afford to build that infrastructure. And we might actually be able to get by some of these really, really difficult arguments around the Greenbelt. So, again, I'm just kind of left wondering, why have we not already done this? And is it because people who own a lot of land also have quite a lot of political power? I think that's definitely part of it. Um, there's no transparency in the land market. We don't know who owns what. We don't know, you know, I couldn't tell you who has made loads of money out of this viability loophole, for example. So that's a big problem. So it's really, really difficult for a campaigning charity like Shelter to come up with like a clear picture of who, of who the barrier here is. So that's part of it. And part of it is because this stuff is really complicated and it's difficult for people to kind of get behind this change and really d- demand it. We've got commitments to make this change in both the Conservative and Labour Party's manifestos for the election this year. But it's not going to happen because where's the parliamentary time to do it? Where's, where's, you know, where's the pressure to do it? So one of the things that Shelter's going to be working on is getting people angry about this, getting people to demand this this revolution in the way we build homes you know let's not beat about the bush it's a fundamental change but it has i think it has to come from people one last thing to wrap up if if we make these changes if like tomorrow sajid javid the community secretary said right i'm going rogue i'm going to do all the things shelter wants we're going to change compulsory purchase we're going to change viability assessments how quickly could we solve this how quickly would we start seeing real changes in terms of actual housing as experienced by people rather than policymakers? Well, under this new system, we would be building homes much faster because we wouldn't have to wait for people to be able to afford to spend you know, £500,000 on a home and you know, we could build more social housing, so it would happen much more quickly. But let's be really conservative here and use the current development pipeline, which is about two years from the time that you agree to build the housing to the time it's finished. You know, I, th- I think we could be seeing a serious step change over the course of this parliament, absolutely. You know, as in, I think we could be getting to 200,000 homes a year over this course of this parliament quite happily. Um, and I think we could be build, ramping up to 250,000 homes a year shortly after that point. This stuff is possible. Sometimes people talk as if the housing crisis has no solutions. It does. Um, they are perfectly viable solutions. We have done it before. It's time to do it again. OK, Minister, over to you. <laughs> So, there we go. Apparently, uh, solving the housing crisis is actually surprisingly simple. So, we've got a budget next week. Come on, Chancellor. Come on, Phil. You can do this. You won't, but you, you could if you really wanted to. But you're not, you're not going to. He's not going to. Anyway, some, some housekeeping before we, before we wrap up. As you'll know, if you were listening last week, uh, we had, for the first time, a guest presenter. We've had, obviously, we've had all sorts of people on this show. But for the first time, we had someone from outside the auspices of City Metric Tower actually doing one of the interviews. A, a student called Josh Bryant did a very interesting interview on, on the subject of slums. And I said at the end of the show, you know, it's the first time we've done this. What did you think? Get in touch. Do you want to hear, do you want to hear more stuff like that? Do you want to hear less of me? Let me know. Disappointingly, it turns out that the feedback on that was was overwhelmingly positive and that people quite like to hear 
more from from people who aren't me, which is obviously a blow to the ego. But uh, it does kind of open up all sorts of possibilities that you know if you're if you're out there, if you've got interesting people to talk to, just we're, we're kind of open to, to hearing from you. Um, maybe getting some different people, getting some different ideas in the show. So. As ever, you know where I am. I'm at John Elledge on Twitter. It's probably easiest to get me that way. If you've got something to say, drop me a line. We'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.